Hello and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, uh, we'll be discussing the short story The Trouble with Alice by Philomena Young. This short story was published in 2017 as part of the Huntsman Chronicle Anthology, and this anthology is a collection of stories that are set in the world of the role-playing game Changeling the Lost, the second edition. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit, but before we do that, I want to say as well that this is an episode that was commissioned by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters. The support that we get on Patreon and then the extra support that we get from commissions like this one, this is how we keep our shows on the air. So we're very grateful for all of this support. I'm also very excited for this particular commission. I mean, it's a cool idea. And broadly speaking, at least, this is something that I have wanted to do for a a while, explore this role-playing game world. And I think it's important to note that, uh, as you said, Glenn, the Patreon and the patrons we have there really help us to produce the stories and the content that we do on Clay Temple Media. But it also provides us excuses like this, where we get to touch on something that we keep on thinking, oh, we would love to talk about that someday, but we just can't make the time for it. Um, so it's great when someone comes through with a commission, which lets us prioritize things and talk about them sooner. Um, it lets us kind of clear the schedule and um, get some of these discussions in, uh, which we otherwise wouldn't be able to have maybe ever, uh, but certainly not for quite a while. Um, so it's really great when we get the support from our patrons, um, and we really appreciate uh, your patronage and your support at any level on the Patreon, but certainly those who um, are the higher tier are able to not only vote, but but also um, suggest ideas for us. Um, And there's some really great ideas that they have. A lot of them are things that we've thought we definitely want to do that. We just don't know when. And other times there's just great ideas where we're like, yeah, I hadn't thought about doing that. That'd be a great thing to do an an episode for. Yeah, it's it's so much fun. I mean, this show here, right, this is the Neil Gaiman show. So you and I've got kind of an agenda about what we're going to cover here. But for half of the shows on the network, the content is entirely decided by listeners in this capacity. Certainly that's true for Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast, and then ATOS, the speculative fiction book club podcast that we do. And it's just a blast having listeners tell us what to do. Uh, it's, I mean, for one thing, it takes some of the work off, uh, <laughs> off, our, off our plate for sure, but also it lets us read stuff. Stuff that we wouldn't maybe otherwise read really expands our horizons, and it's just so much fun. So yeah, uh, everybody here at the network is so grateful for not just the financial support that lets us do the work, but also the participation, the creative participation from our listeners. It's just awesome. So thank you so very much for the, all of that. But all right, let's uh, let's turn our attention to this episode. The plan here is, is is fairly big because, as we said, this is a story that is set in an RPG world, and so naturally <laughs> we're going to start by talking about that RPG world. Then we'll move into the story itself, though I think even then also really mostly treating it as an artifact of that game world. And then we're going to finish up by talking about fairies. We'll talk about the fairies in Changeling and how they compare to what we've seen in The Sandman and also what we've seen in Kipling. And I I guess that's also kind of where we'll really talk about, you know, why we're doing this episode on this show rather than one of the other shows on on the network as well. So let's just start by talking about 
not even just this game, Changeling, but the broader world of, of, of gamings or network of games, perhaps, that this is a part of, which is the World of Darkness, which began back in 1991 with the publication of the game Vampire the Masquerade that was certainly a huge part of our life, Brent. It certainly was. And Vampire the Masquerade is something that um, Mark Reinhagen from White Wolf Publishing first dreamed up. And his idea was about combining uh, urban fantasy with something dark and moody. And originally he was thinking about something, uh, he was leaning towards a gothic vampire role-playing game. And apparently at one time he was thinking, well, maybe we'll even license um, Anne Rice's work, um, Interview with the Vampire and the other um, – books associated with it, the Lestat books. Um, but then they decided, no, we don't actually need to do that to to be able to tell the story we want to tell. Um, and a lot of this history is fascinating, um, and I'm not going to go into it in terms of the history of White Wolf Publishing and subsequent companies who have owned the licensing rights. Um, but if you want to know more, I cannot uh, speak highly enough of the series Designers and Dragons, a history of the role-playing game industry. And it's a uh, by Shannon Applecline. It goes through role-playing game history in multiple volumes. In particular, if you want to know about White Wolf, uh, you're going to want to look at the 1990 through 1999 volume. So Vampire the Masquerade was the first of a number of books that they put in what they called the World of Darkness setting, where it was just supposed to be a gothic punk kind of like our world, but with urban fantasy laid on, but a lot more dark and kind of grim, though not grim dark, layered on top of that. Um, and it was followed by a series of other games, including um, when Vampire the – let me go back. In Vampire the Masquerade, you – that plays vampires. Uh, and that came out in 1991 originally. And then there were uh, subsequent editions that updated the rules a little bit that came out after that. Um, in 1992, it was followed by a game called Werewolf the Apocalypse, also set in the World of Darkness, where you played a werewolf. Uh, and then in 1993, Mage the Ascension, where you played a mage uh and then wraith the oblivion <laughs> yeah, it does, does what it says on the box it's it's, good. it's actually great naming <laughs> yep and then wraith the oblivion in 1994 where you plays a wraith uh uh and then changeling the dreaming came along in 1995 so uh and you play as a changeling and what the changeling is we can talk about a little bit how it differs from the 1995 version versus the later version uh for changeling the lost versus changeling the dreaming um but in the original 1990s books this world of darkness it was this kind of shared bit of real estate that all of these games, the idea was that, you know, if your storyteller, which is what they call their dungeon master or game master, uh, would allow, you could layer all of these into the same um into the same story it was all could be canon. And ultimately, even they had a series of modules that wrapped, uh, that a number of times did crossovers amongst these various lines. They did one in the mid nineties called the year of the hunter, where it was all about the idea that you could play, uh, mortals who are hunting these things that are outside of normal things, or inversely, you could play creatures who are trying to deal with the hunters. And a lot of these had to do with kind of dark, moody role-playing. Um, the systems themselves did still involve pencils and paper and dice, um, though fewer maps than people who are used to dungeon delving with D&D might think. But uh, yeah, that was kind of some of the basics of the World of Darkness. Um, 
they also eventually did release kind of some historical things. So there was a Vampire of the Dark Ages that came out in 1996, where you played a vampire in the Dark Ages, if you might. Yeah, yeah not not the not the Dark Ages, the the 13th century, which has never been called the Dark Ages, and also calling anything the Dark Ages is rude, uh, says the medievalist. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, not the least rude thing about the things that appear in these books, which is uh, <laughs> uh, something which I can touch on just a minute a bit. But then there was a where. Wolf the Wild West that came out in 1997 uh, and Mage the Sorcerer's Crusade, which came out in 1998. Um, there was also other kind of the blink, the whatever um, that came out later. There was, you know, for mummies, for, you know, Frankenstein monster type creatures, for demons, for uh, even kind of angelic figures. Yeah, it's a it's a crowded it's a crowded world. Maybe a little too cra- crowded when you get when you pack all of that in. But I think the coherent world of the world of darkness is, for me, the real selling point of uh, the the games as as individual games. But then the whole the whole thing packaged together as well. I mean, you you talked about this, Brent, as 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 urban fantasy with with dark elements. And I think you also may have coined the phrase or the term dark grim as opposed to grim dark, which I am all for and is about shortly to be a hashtag on. on social media. And it's certainly a term we're going to start using here across the network. But, you know, in addition, in addition to this historical stuff, all of which, although I, you know, take umbrage at the use of the term Dark Ages, that book is awesome. Uh, I love that book. Uh, I like the, the the Wild West werewolf book as well. That stuff is very cool. But even setting aside the historical stuff, a huge part of the fun of this world is seeing how these secret supernatural elements have been woven into the world that we're living in, in the 1990s. And they were really expansive about this. And so you could get guides for the world of darkness for, uh, you know, different parts of the world, certainly different parts of, of the Atlantic world, for sure, right? So uh, something we really loved when we were growing up in Chicagoland in the 1990s was the book about Chicago what Chicago is like in the world of darkness. And there are lots of these and they're all super fun. It's a great part of the world. Yeah, it really is. Um, And some of them are more lovingly done than others, but uh, Chicago by night was a great uh, one that came out a couple different versions. In fact, there was a recent uh, updated version that came out of Chicago by night in the last couple of years. Even Um, I have a copy I'm looking at on my bookshelf. Um, So if there's interest in the future from a patron, maybe uh, that's something that we could touch on as well. Um, But it is fun for people who particularly teenagers who are full of emotions and moodiness, um, you know, listening to the goth music, who then want to think about history and want to layer in, okay, well, how does, you know, how would a fantasy setting that involves vampires and mages and wraiths and werewolves throughout time look if it was mapped on this? Uh, I do want to note that it also leads to a lot of things that are at minimal insensitive at most uh racist that were not necessarily the intention of any of the authors um but unfortunately when you take real people and real world events and then you try to layer on your fictional ideas uh it can cause you to either play into stereotypical stereotypical tropes um or minimize um, actual horrors that have occurred to humans throughout time. So you kind of have to acknowledge that that is something that's kind of part and parcel of what you're going into this and kind of not get 
too excited about it, but it's also something that, you know, creators who are writing things that are fiction layered in the real world, whether it's historical or real world today, do need to take on some burden of taking as much care as possible. But uh, as you said, Glenn, the shared universe of this whole world stacked on top of each other just lets your imagination run wild. It's really great. One flaw is that, you know, you're producing these games using the same gaming system then, and sometimes they didn't really crunch together as well as you wanted to. So it did lead later to a reboot in the Chronicles of Darkness rather than the World of Darkness. And one of the big hallmarks of that was focusing a little bit on like, okay, here's one set of rules that are kind of coherently written with the idea that then you can promulgate a number of products rather than kind of the piecemeal development of, well, we want to, we want to write something about werewolves now, so let's definitely figure out how we can use the rules for vampires to layer on the werewolves. And those systems actually don't work that poorly together. It was just an example, but still it, it led to some improvements in terms of the game mechanics over time. And this came out in in 2011, or, or you know, the the reboot happened in 2011. That's when the game started coming out. And this is you know a decade ago for us, but it was a decade after really my role playing involvement had more or less ceased, uh, except for every once in a while picking up a book because I just wanted to read a role playing book, even though I knew I wasn't going to get to play it. And I I checked out some of the early reboot material from probably around 2013 or so, and I felt like I didn't like it nearly as much as I had liked the World of Darkness material from the 1990s, though I couldn't point to anything specific. But I, I wonder if you had any feelings about that, Brent, just sort of broadly about what, which one you preferred. I had a very similar reaction that you did. And I think it's not because the new material is worse. I think the new material probably is actually better in terms of providing game mechanics. It's just less flavorful and less focus on kind of the interstitial stories. And those are still present, but something that's been a hallmark for all of these series over time has been um, really great art, um, but also really great kind of interstitial bits of prose. Oftentimes it's just quotes from songs or books or other media that already exist. Um, but it's just finding things that are really evocative and like snippets of stories of like what it's like to live in this world. Um, and this is something that the Huntsman Chronicle anthology, which we'll talk about later, the story that we're talking about, it, it that's kind of a longer form version of like one of these snippets, which would otherwise be in one of the books. In fact, the author from of the the Trouble with Alice is one of the contributing authors for the new Changeling, The Lost, and also has worked on a number of other of the game products. But uh, I think when you and I were teenagers, uh, we thought about role playing more than we actually spent time at the table actually role playing. Yes. Yeah. That has been my experience since, you know, leaving adolescence and becoming an adult and occasionally getting involved in real role-playing games is to discover just how much gaming role-playing groups actually do. Because I think our experience in the 90s was to uh, encounter role-playing games as a, a type of of speculative fiction, right? These worlds that we could engage with. And we loved to make characters and kind of start campaigns, but never get very far into them. That there was the, the creative storytelling process was, uh, at least, you know, from my perspective anyway, Brad, was, was kind of the real kind of impulse there for engaging with this material. 
And yeah, that's exactly, I think, what happened when I took a look at the Chronicles of Darkness material is that I felt like this is more gaming than story. And that's not really what I have come to this book for. I do want to note that um, I subscribe a lot to the way that Mike Shea, also known as Sly Flourish, who's the author of The Lazy Dungeon Master, kind of conceives of gaming time, which is any time that you're spending even thinking about gaming is time that you are gaming and that it is value you're getting out of the hobby. So I think that just the way we approach the hobby where we spent a lot more time thinking about it and talking about concepts, I still do count as gaming time, but it was not strictly time that was sitting at a table and dealing with the mechanics. Um, we also were a lot more, particularly with the World of Darkness stuff, even more than when we dealt with Dungeons and Dragons or play the West End Star Wars game, for, for instance. I think we were a lot more fast and loose with the rule settings, with the rules themselves, um, and did not get as hung up on you know, the differences between a six and a seven on a die, the way that we would have with other uh, material where we were a little bit more fixated. Right. Yeah. Some of the, the tabletop war games that uh, <laughs> you on multiple occasions were forced to play for long, long, long periods of time. And by forced to play, uh, I can think of a number of occasions where it's just simply a matter of I clearly was winning, but the other person refused to yield. And so I stubbornly made them play until the last force was wiped from the board uh, so that it was clear <laughs> yeah. that I had been winning and had been doing so for about 10 hours. Yeah. And uh, I think this particular story, this was my 15th birthday party, sleepover birthday party. And just to be clear, I was asleep. I'm not the other person in this story. <laughs> Yes. Also, uh, talking about game time versus not game time, I believe that I spent, um, of those 10 hours or so, I probably spent no more than two, two hours total actually at the board. Uh, the other person spent a lot of time thinking about their moves, and I would quickly walk up and particularly once the tides had clearly turned in my favor, (laughs) (laughs) I just had to basically do what I kept doing. Um, but anyways, um, access and allies can be a whole other podcast. Uh, if patrons are interested. But yeah, so there was a lot of fun to be had and there's a lot of uh, enjoyment that I still get out of flipping through the World of Darkness stuff as well as the Chronicles of Darkness stuff. I do also want to mention that all of these materials are great to take a look at if you're interested. Um, But I will note in addition to the Chronicles of Darkness stuff that started coming out in the last decade, uh, they also released uh, anniversary, 20th anniversary editions of um, at least uh, Vampire the Masquerade, but I think also maybe Werewolf and Mage. Um, so there are people who I'm sure are playing those 1990 games, but they're playing the version that was released not in the 1990s, but re- released more recently. Um, and those just have kind of cleaned up some consistency in editing, is my understanding. Um, but by and large, it's the same game. So um, also, I do want to note... Very quickly, White Wolf Publishing, when they started producing all these games, particularly for Vampire the Masquerade, released uh, separate rule sets for what they called the Mind's Eye Theater for live action role playing or LARPing. Um, it is a game that uh, lends itself very well to people who want to engage in LARPing. Um, any kind of LARPing that involves you playing a group of people who are trying to look to exist in the modern world, um, but may wear you know, anachronistic clothing, but still modern world 
um, mostly appear human a good chunk of the time, but also are trying to disguise themselves from normal people walking about and living their lives is a great game setting for doing live action role playing because you can do it in populated areas. Um, and people might know what you're up to, but they're not supposed to. And that's actually part of the game. Um, <laughs> so there is a lot of fun that you can have for those who are into LARPing um, with games like Vampire the Masquerade that just lends itself to it so much better in my mind than um, some other things. Um, there are a lot of people who fun, have fun LARPing with you know fantasy world stuff because it is a good excuse to go out to a park, but the, some of us like to go out to parks and not worry about carrying our fake swords. Um, while as in the nineties, we wouldn't mind having an excuse for having something to do with the mall since we were there anyways. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, we did try our hand at this, our uh, senior year of high school. You ran a, uh, a vampire, the masquerade LARP for us that, um, was more successful, I think, than we imagined it would be though. Still, you know, fizzled out after, after uh, a few sessions. Well, uh, let's uh, let's turn our attention here, Brent. I think to talking specifically about Change Lane, and, and we can kind of tug on the thread of 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 different editions and reboots and so on here. And let's start by talking about the original Change Lane game from the 1990s, which has the the subtitle after the colon of the Dreaming. Yeah, and Change Lane: The Dreaming was a fascinating uh, book when it came out because, as as we said, there was a lot of dark and grim. You know, the goth punk kind of world of darkness and changing the dreaming is as with those other games supposed to be layered within it. But let me explain the setup for changing the dreaming. So in changing the dreaming, you're essentially a fey soul thing that is born into the mortal world. And so you're kind of crossing between two worlds. So I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the, um, Changeling the Dreaming uh, guide here about what it is to be a changeling. This is changeling kind. It's actually real hard to find a succinct like paragraph that says, this is what this game is about, um, which I think was part of my frustration with the layout of this game. Uh, there's a lot of things I like about it, though. So let, let me just read a little bit of this, um, and I think it'll help uh, the listener get an appreciation for what the game was going after in terms of you know the kind of character you'd be playing. You lead a double life alternating between reality and fantasy, caught in the middle ground between dream and wakefulness. You are neither wholly fey nor wholly mortal, but burdened with the cares of both, finding a happy medium between the wild and insane world of the fey and the deadening, banal world of humanity is essential if you are to remain whole. Such a synthesis is by no means easy. Mortal affairs seem so ephemeral and so trivial when you stand amid the ageless magnificence of the Seely Court. When you don garments spun of pure moonlight and drink wine distilled from mountain mists, how can you go back to polyester and soda pop? Alas, you have no choice. Although your fairy self is ageless and eternal, your mortal body and mind grow older and less resilient as you move through life. Sooner or later, nearly all changelings succumb to one of two equally terrifying conditions. Banality, the loss of their fairy magic, or bedlam, the loss of their mortal reason. But is this fate inevitable? Can you retain your childlike wonder while fighting against the frigid banality that seeks to numb your mind and steal your past? Can you ride the currents of the dreaming without being swept away in the maelstrom of bedlam? Tragically, you are alone in the mundane world. 
No mortal will ever understand the depth of your alienation, strangeness, and uniqueness. Though you may try to communicate your condition through art, and many have tried and failed, only those with fairy blood will see, understand, and appreciate what you are. An exile among exiles, lost among the lost, a stranger in every crowd. Hail, fellow traveler. Welcome to the dreaming. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's a cool story hook for sure. Like I, I would read some stories about that, but I immediately have to wonder what, what are the, what's the game here? What's the gaming element here, right? This is clearly not, you know, murder hobos protecting a town from raiding goblins. So what are the adventures that you have in Changeling the Dreaming? Because you're part of the world of darkness, there can be um, fighting back against, you know, the imp- influence of maybe vampires or werewolves or mages or other wraiths kind of trying to mess things up for you. There are struggles. Um, there's a, kind of a hallmark of a lot of World of Darkness games is there's a lot of political struggles and those exist at every level. Um, this isn't simply there are good guys and there are bad guys. Um, there's a whole bunch of shaded gray folks. Um, and within each unit, there is almost always some kind of power dynamic and political or social struggle going on. Um, so you can have uh, struggles between your court and rival courts. You could be struggling against, you know, the fact that there are, you know, mortals who are, you know, scholar and Scully and Mulder are aware of you or think they're aware of you and are trying to like catch you or experiment on you, something like that. Um, and then a lot of it is, and this is kind of the balancing mechanic of a lot of games is this, you know, there is a sliding thing to make sure that you're tracking the banality as it's affecting you and bedlam. And you kind of have to be monitoring that you're not sliding too far in one direction or the other, at which point it's kind of game over for that character. But a lot of it's just about wandering through a world where you could kind of take any kind of urban fantasy and kind of slap it on top of it. So there's a lot of things that we've seen in Neil Gaiman's writing, um, particularly in Sandman, but a lot of his other stuff that you can just kind of, yep, we're going to layer that on it. And then that's going to be a changeling story. It's just that your entry point is you are a creature who has like, you know, is a fae born in a mortal body and you have access to kind of this magic. But if you tap it too much, then bad things happen. But also there's things that are trying to crush your spirits and dreams because you're, you know, Peter Pan and you don't really want to grow up. <laughs> a lot of the changeling is about not wanting to grow up, right? So what then does changeling the lost do uh, that is different from the the dreaming? And then also I know within changeling the lost, there are two different additions that I, I, I think you've said to me previously, Brent, are, are actually fairly different. So walk us through that. So changeling the lost instead has it that you're not a fae. You're a person who was either uh, tricked or against your will dragged into the world of the Fae, into Fairy, and then kind of altered while there, and you managed to struggle and escape. Um, and enter the real, real uh, enter the real world again, but you're forever kind of broken from your experience. So, if I might go ahead and read something from the introduction to Changing the Lost, this is second edition. There was always something you were missing, something everybody got that you didn't. Some metaphorical party to which everyone was invited, but you. Someone offered you a glimpse of it, of that thing that would make you whole. So you followed them. 
but you were deceived. The wider world you had just a glimpse of was only a sliver of a vast landscape of madness and horror. For a while you kept going, yes, but eventually you had to get out. So you did. You braved pain and isolation, and you changed your life again. You ran back over the line, rushing toward the place you came from, the memory of all that was good in it lighting your way. And now you're back. Turns out your life kept going without you. In your absence, the familiar became strange. You're out of place again. But you won't take it this time. You will make your place, and you will defend it when your deceiver comes knocking. And if something is still missing, and there always seems to be, you will find it and you will make it part of you. There will be dragons, and there will be sirens, and there will be all the armies of the other world sent to bring you back. But you will slay them, and you will shun them, and you will stand on the battlements of your fortress as they break against your walls of thorn and iron. You will be free, and none of that was a metaphor. You know the stories... The hero leaves his village on a terrifying journey, or the waif finds her way through the cold, dark woods. In the end, they kill the giant, or shove the witch in, the, in an oven. But what happens next? In Changeling the Lost, you take on the role of an ordinary person who has seen the extraordinary. Lured or abducted by the alien gentry, you have passed the gates and hedges between our world and the vast fantastic. In Arcadia, the gentry changed you. They forged your flesh and sewed your bones, and they gave you a role to play. You were a lover, or a servant, or a monster, but it was never your story. Having run from your keeper and climbed your way back through the hedge, and didn't the thorns bite more than they did going in? You're back in the world of pizza and Facebook and nuclear anxiety. Your eyes are open now. You can see that magic is not the sole province of fairy. The world is alive with wonders most people never see, and rife with horrors that count on that unwariness. It's all part of your life now. You take the good with the bad, the magic with the monstrosity, the beauty with the madness. It's not always an easy story, not always a happy story, but now it's your story. This concept then is really more what people mean by the the term changeling than the the 1990s version of it was that uh, where where that sounds like where that seems like th that was interested in telling a kind of urban fantasy story about magical creatures this is really drawing on medieval english folklore and and also just you know high poetry uh, about changelings and uh, this seems like this is a story where i mean even just thinking about where we have intersected with fairies here on this show in the the work of neil gaiman right is that the the type of character that you're going to play in changeling the lost is this baby that Titania has uh, has recently uh, abducted uh, and, and who she and Oberon are quarreling about at the beginning of Shakespeare's play. Uh, but then also, this could be a story you could actually, I suppose, play Hamnet, who's returned uh, right after also having been taken by Titania in uh, Gaiman's adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And that, that's cool. That's fun. Yeah, it's a lot darker. It leans into a lot more of, again, the alienation and the darkness. And one of the ideas, and there's not a good quote for it, but um, one of the ideas of the game is, and it mentions in the passage I read, I guess, that, you know, your world continued without you. So one of the, um, one thing that can happen is that when you are taken, it a changeling takes your place. 
Um, and it actually lives your life maybe even better than you would have, or at least better than you had at the time. Um, and we see this in a lot of other stories too, where, um, yeah, there's a memorable storyline from Spider-Man in the last decade or so where Doc Ock actually takes over Spider-Man's uh, body uh, and then he actually lives kind of Peter Parker's best life, um, <laughs> which is then horrible for like Peter to then witness happening, right? Um, but it's this idea that you come back, but also then your friends and family maybe don't recognize you because you don't look like you anymore because you might look like you're a monster or you might look like you're just a donkey, right? But you don't quite look right. You're you're some kind of terrible creature um, that is, you know, knocking at their window, trying to get in um, and, you know, smirking back at you is the creature that replaced you. And, you know, that's kind of a... a fun bit of storytelling you can kind of engage in there. Um, and in this uh, Changeling the Lost in the second edition, there are kind of courts that are set up where these creatures that have escaped are all kind of banding together to kind of help each other. But there's, of course, power struggles within as to like how best to approach things. Um, but there's constantly these envoys that are being sent to drag back individual individuals that have escaped from Arcadia by these, the, the gentry they're called, which is the true Fae. And the true Fae are constantly trying to get back these people who escape. And so you're playing someone who's escaped, who's then trying to, you know, band together with other misfits um, who are trying to then keep at bay, but then, you know, people sell people out, um, which is something that, you know, we touch on a little bit then when we talk about the story, but it, it's, it's a much darker setting that kind of fits better with what we think of with some of those other world of darkness and even Chronicles of darkness kind of games. And it seems like this game is largely set up so that you can play stories or, or you know, tell stories together collaboratively in a, in a, in a gaming system uh, that have a lot of like thriller elements to them, uh, you know, needing to uh, escape, needing to, to hide, uh, feeling like you're kind of trapped in, a, in some of a, something like a, a Kafka-esque nightmare, the kind of wrong person type of, of, of story there, the sort of, the sort of famous uh, Hitchcock uh, storytelling device that you get all of that and you can also get betrayed and uh, secret identities. All of that sounds like that would be just a, a really fun game to play. That's very cool. And in character creation for it, a lot of it is then thinking about if there are particular traditional archetypes and tropes that you want to layer into your character very intentionally so, because as that excerpt I read mentioned, you know, when your character was in fairy, you were corrupted to be a thing, to play a purpose in a story. Um, so you were maybe made to be the monster or you were a lover or you were just the, the boy who carries the wine, right? But like you were, you know, twisted to that end. But it also means that you basically can look at, you know, pop open any bit of, um, you know, Grimm's fairy tales and be like, I want to play a character that is a riff off of, you know, the big bad wolf or Hansel or Gretel or the witch, even frankly. Um, and you can kind of, you know, play with any of those things and very intentionally so, and just kind of like, there isn't a, like, you don't have to try to be subtle about your metaphor here. Like literally you are fulfilling the archetypal role of the wolf. Um, and then you're kind of, we're broken to do that. 
in the media that the Changeling the Lost second edition recommends that you check out for kind of inspiration, uh, they mention they start with Grimm's Fairy Tales, particularly referencing that you should look for the kind of older versions that try less for um, trying to tell yourselves uh, tales about what you should or shouldn't do, um, uh, and not teaching valuable lessons so much as just the darker, bloodier original tales. Uh, also, Jessica Jones, uh, season one. Um, on Netflix, um, Jessica Jones being uh, a Marvel Comics character, Labyrinth, directed by Jim Henson, which is a great pull for a whole bunch of things. But of course, you know, the instigating action there is that, you know, a teenage girl uh, is tired of listening to um, her baby brother wailing and so wishes that he was taken away. Um, and then he is. Um, and then she realizes there's a mistake there. Mirror Mask, which is directed by Dave McKeon, who we talk about all the time on this podcast. Yeah, well, and and written by Neil Gaiman, right? It says, oh, yeah, Mirror Mask is something we're going to cover someday on this show, for sure. Yeah. It's, I've, In fact, I've been holding off. I'll just say this to you, Brent, while also saying it to listeners. I, I, the reason I've not been putting that on ballots is, is simply that I'm waiting for Finch to be old enough to watch it with me. So that will be a while. It'll be like eight years before we can, you know, before that's showing up on a ballot. But uh, uh, I'm looking forward to that day. Well, let's move into talking about this anthology now, the Huntsman Chronicle Anthology. And this is a collection of short stories that gives us a a, a variety of perspectives on what uh, Changeling as a a world, as as a setting, a storytelling setting is about, and also gives some examples of the types of stories that you could tell in a role-playing game, you know, either a you know, single adventure or a longer campaign. It's meant to, to build up some enthusiasm about the game itself, give you some examples, and and so on. And I, I love this sort of thing. And this is also the sort of thing that uh, we've covered quite a bit of, actually, uh, in, in various places on the network. I guess mostly over on ATOS, a speculative fiction book club podcast, where I've done some Dragonlance, I've uh, done... Numenera, two things on Numenera, actually, and and also some Warhammer 40k, because I really love this stuff. In fact, a huge part of my engagement with role-playing games in our adolescence, as you know, Brent, because you were there for it, was reading role-playing game novels, mostly fantasy novels, loved Dragonlance, read a lot of Forgotten Realms, uh, read a lot of Ravenloft, and, and other things as well. And so this sort of thing here, this is exactly my jam. And I really also loved that this was a, a short story collection. It gave me a lot of different uh, uh, glimpses into this world. But we picked one to look at here. We, we picked the Trouble with Alice. And the reason that we picked this one is that it is a hard-boiled detective story a la Raymond Chandler, who's actually mentioned in the story and uh, whom we also will mention again in Season of Mists uh, coming up here on this uh, on this podcast. And the story even takes place in LA, which is, of course, you know, the stomping grounds of Chandler's iconic hero, Philip Marlowe. But our detective in this story is named Lisa McDade, and she has all the problems that hard-boiled detectives are supposed to have. Uh, she's got, you know, money woes. She's got a chip on her shoulder. She's also got a paladin esque sense of justice. And McDade's backstory is that she used to be in law enforcement, but she left in order to start her own private investigation business, really so that she could work on the big mystery of her life, trying to solve the big mystery of her life, which is what happened to her sister Alice, who just disappeared without a trace. And McDade's life is about to be taken over by elements from the changeling, right? Because this is an RPG story, right? But we start out uh, from the perspective of a, a mundane character. And this happens when 
McDade randomly encounters an old man who gives her a, a dollar bill to hold on to. She gives him a, a business card. She's a little worried about this guy. And then she goes on her way. And she gets back to her office. She's visited by a, a femme fatale and also that femme fatale's lackey. They want to hire McDade to find an old man who sounds more or less exactly like the old man that she just met. But even before she can start the job, the police contact her. The police contact McDade because... This old man has been found dead, and of course he had her business card on him. So that's all the story set up. And this is a, a you know, classic private detective mystery adventure story setup. It's just spot on. It's awesome. I loved every bit of this. But I think, Brent, at this point, we could just leave the synopsis there and really pick up talking about the story by looking at the game world elements. And uh, Brent, I'll let you take over this here and you can kind of explain to us what actually happens in this story, right? What is the the changeling story here that McDade gets wrapped up in? Yeah. So what kind of unravels for us as we go is uh, we are led to discover that a lot of the folks who Dade is interacting with are these creatures who have, you know, in some way been touched by or manipulated by uh, the Fae, um, by the, the true Fae, by the gentry, as the game mechanics would call it, um, and are kind of hiding out in Los Angeles. Um, and they have their own little kind of petty games going on and very specific rules that they try to follow. Um, they're all kind of concerned and looking over their shoulder a lot of the time. Um, but, you know, whether it be the old man who is killed, who is name is Eugene Callender, whether it be the woman who she can't quite remember what she looks like, um, but she knows she's a femme fatale in a red dress and she's very much almost just she is the red dress, right? Um, or whether she's the soldier bodyguard of it. Those are all just, these are, these are archetypes who I think we're supposed to read all of them as, um, they might as well be characters you'd interact with in Changeling the Lost, um, who have escaped from fairy and are hiding out and trying to make the most of the situation in Los Angeles, always looking over their shoulder again for the gentry to come. Um, and she's kind of, been pulled into their story. And it sounds like we're led to believe that at some point her sister, Alice, her twin sister, Alice was previously lured into fairy. Um, and she then wants to go try to recover her sister. And she's warned against this. She's told like, you know, that that's not something you should want. Um, it'd be very dangerous and bad for you, but ultimately she wants to go there. And I don't think it ever refers to the hedge, in the story, but that is in game mechanics, this place that exists between fairy and our normal world. And kind of once you go into the hedge, A, it can be hard to get out, but also you easily can be touched by things. And so, you know, she's fed a concoction um, in vodka that causes her to start seeing the world in a more kind of true sense. Um, she thinks she's drugged, um, and in a way she is, but in a way it's kind of like, you know, a conception of drugs in which it's opening your third eye and suddenly you can, you know, do Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, right? Yeah, the the doors of perception. Yeah. Here, right. That's that's the phrase we're looking for. Yeah, or the veil has been lifted. And as an aside, by the way, uh apparently I have no confirmation of this, but uh Shannon Applecline is a wonderful historian and he makes reference to it, I believe, in his book. Uh so it's probably true if he says that there was a rumor of it. Um at one time, they had thought if they did a Changeling the Dreaming 
uh, Arrow book like they had for Vampire the the Dark Ages, as they called it, or Werewolf the Wild West. It would have been a changeling set in the 60s with flower power stuff going on. But uh, that's neither here nor there. So, yeah, we've got uh, this hard-boiled detective who's smack up against these you know, creatures that have escaped fairy and are kind of trying to make their way. Although as I began reading the story and I kind of want to ask you about this, Glenn, I began wondering if the story was, if the story was essentially written, (laughs) this is a weird way to phrase it, but um, if after the character of Lisa McDade becomes kind of part of this world, whether that then is the retelling of her story where she maybe would have looked normal and not in a hard-boiled sense prior to that point. But basically, that's part of the thing that reconfigures her to be the archetypal, you know, noir detective. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. I, I, I think that this is, you know, case file number 27 for Lisa McDade here. And it just happens that, you know, because we're interested in the world of the changeling, this is the story we get in this collection, but that you actually could have just uh, non-speculative fiction, uh, you know, cases for Lisa McDade, where we, we do learn a little bit more about, you know, Alice's disappearance and so on. And then we get this one, this story really, you know, it's the longest story in the collection at, at 20 pages by word count. Probably it's technically a, a novelette, which is really, that's kind of the wheelhouse where short fiction, short hardball detective fiction lives is in that novelette word count range. That's sort of classically what Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett wrote when they were publishing short fiction before they were able to move on to write novels and and so on. And this could be expanded into a a novel, right? We could actually have gotten a little more, you know, backstory, uh, maybe opened up with uh, sort of the closing of some other, you know, case and that sort of thing. And then actually had another act where it transforms into something a little more like urban fantasy. And we get McDade saying, no, screw it. I'm going after my sister. And now just entering full on into the world of the change lane. That's a book I would read for sure. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I I think to explain what I was conceiving this as, as I was getting near the end of the story, the thought came to mind that, you know, the character McDade all of a sudden reached a point where she was painted over and everything around her was painted over with this brush that let her see kind of this, you know, extra fantasy layer that overlaid everything she's interacting with. But then I imagine the brush retroactively also going over her up till the start of the case. And so it's not that I think she wasn't a detective before who had cases. It's that in looking at the way that the author chose to phrase things, I wondered if, you know, in my mind, it was just kind of coloring over that, you know, if if this had been a normal case, then we maybe wouldn't have had to lay on so thickly kind of the let me do a Raymond Chandler or Dashiell Hammett kind of <laughs> right. Yeah. The question is, did prior to prior to uh, getting this uh, this drug to drink this spiked drink, did Lisa McDade you know refer to legs as getaway sticks? Yeah, right. <laughs> essentially. The, yeah, that sort of thing. And uh, you might be onto something there. That might that might be the case. But that's something I loved about this story is is just that it is fairly tongue in cheek as a kind of uh, uh, pastiche of, of of that era of of storytelling with the language and so on. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, no, I, I 
I enjoyed that a lot. Um, and one thing I really like as well that you alluded to is you said, you know, this would be a great setup and certainly we could have gotten a little better background if there was more space given to it. A lot of space is given to it, but you know, if this was a full novella or, you know, a novel, even we could have had more background on, you know, her realizing her sister was first gone. Um, and then we would have gotten, you know, the further act of what it was like to her, her to then pursue her sister. And I think it's notable that. In the version we're looking at, there is clearly identified an act one and an act two, but there is no act three given to us. So to me, it very much is set up to be there is a third act, like this is only part of a story. Um, and it doesn't say at the end, you know, feel free to lift this and then play out this mechanic. But certainly you could, you know, a storyteller and a player or multiple players could be like, okay, who wants to play Lisa McDade? Here's the character sheet. I'm going to run through what I envision might be the story as it lays out and we'll, you know, we'll create it together, the story of what happens to Lisa McDade in act three of her story. That, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it doesn't say that, but it doesn't have to say that because it's, it's clearly what's going on here. And that's one of the reasons I really liked this story out of the collection in particular is that it's it's doing that work of giving someone who maybe has gotten this uh, collection as part of a bundle for having supported the Kickstarter or just, you know, purchased, uh, purchased the bundle because you get a lot of extra stuff, you know, for just a little bit more money than you're going to pay for the core books. That's kind of the, you know, the model for, for role-playing games uh, these days. And, you know, but you're looking for what's the hook. I mean, and th this is this is perfect. This is basically the character creation process just turned into a story. And I super loved it. You know, we we alluded earlier, well, we didn't allude to it. We talked earlier about some of our own experiences of uh, playing role-playing games during our adolescence in high school. And one of the real, I think, sticking points for us, Brent, in, in actually getting to the point of, uh, you know, sitting around the, the gaming table with a gaming group is that we actually got kind of obsessed with role-playing out the backstories of our characters. And so I think a big percentage of the time that we actually spent gaming, uh, you know, in the way of, of, of having a, uh, a GM and a player and maybe using some dice, maybe not, was actually all these solo stories that we would do with the, the the GM and one player doing all of these backstories. That was something we'd spent a lot of time doing. We got kind of obsessed with that. I, I can think of three different, you know, games we decided to start where we did at least some of that. And this felt exactly like that and is perhaps part of what I really loved about it. Yeah, no, it's really great. And I think it's something that everyone who plays role-playing games kind of enjoys making characters. And if you're really into the mechanics, then you really like, you know, finding things that either min-max well to, you know, power game your character, or even ways to intentionally do things that are not as powerful as they should be, just because it'll be more fun to do that. One of the things that the World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness games do real well is this idea of sitting down and talking through or even role playing out kind of the story of your character and then later filling it in with some of the mechanics. Um, there's a lot of games that kind of invert this a little bit that are equally fun. I'm thinking of uh, Traveler, which has um, in one of its conceptions, you roll dice and you choose a life path for your character. You start at age 18. You decide like, do you want to go to school? Okay. Roll dice to see whether you succeed in getting admitted to college. And then things happen while you're there and you roll dice all the time. 
Um, in one of the versions of Traveler, you can your character can actually die during character creation, which is a fun concept, but it basically gamifies the idea of character creation itself. Um, another game that you and I are both fans of, uh, the original Cyberpunk 2019, um, had similarly a life path thing where you would roll. You could pick, but we never did. You rolled. Um, and then you determine like, okay, what happened during that year? You know, did you make a lot of money? Do you now owe a lot of money? Did you have a lover? What happened to them? How badly did it end? Are they alive? Do they hate you? Do they want to shoot you on sight? Those are just kind of fun things that, you know, there's a lot of systems to do that. And there are a lot of D and D games that have, not in, I think, any original official published stuff, but a lot of third-party stuff where you start as a level zero character. And I think maybe Dungeon Crawl Classics, one of the retro clones, has this where I think you can start as a level zero where you don't have any of your basic skills, but you use that and what happens to your character to figure out what class you should be. But even for things that don't have class systems, it's a lot of fun to do character creation. Um, and anytime you can find a way to do character creation with a bunch of people around a table doing it together, it can be that much more meaningful because you can look for connections. Um, and I encourage people to, if time allows, do character creation as a group. Even if you want to have secrets from people, then like it's more fun to like, you know, build that in and not just everyone shows up with their, I've got the lone wolf character who suddenly we're going to force it on the dungeon master game master storyteller of like, please tell us why we're all together. And it's like, don't do that to someone um, unless that's the game they want to play. Unless you want to play the version of, you know, uh, the cube, the film where it's just like, none of you know each other and you're trapped <laughs> in this place. And that can be fun, but also times it can be fun to be like, why are you together? Let's figure this out. And one of my, you know, favorite characters I played recently, I was joining the second session and I'm just like, it's a D and D game. And I asked, what, well, what's everyone's background? And one person's like, oh, I was a sailor. And I'm like, perfect. You and I were on a sailing ship together at some point in the last 10 years. And we got along well then. That's it. And then I happened to be come across you in whatever town we're in. And that's the hook that gets my character invested. Cause I remember you fondly from that time. Um, and we can build out from there, you know, what relationship our characters had when they were both sailors. Um, uh, it's really fun to make characters and it can be equally fun, if not more so to then sitting down and like going through the campaign itself. Um, it's also a lot less work just to make characters than it, it's, it's, it's easier on the dungeon master and storyteller where they don't have to actually come up with, okay, now into what, how do I actually provide challenges to these people to instead be like, no, let's just, you know, see what the world's like by making characters. But you also can take all of those character ideas then and either, you know, even take them and make them non-player characters. The dungeon master can just have it do that. And I've heard a lot of people who do that, where they play through, you do a whole setting where everyone plays a group of characters. And then afterwards, the dungeon master scoops up the character sheets and says, okay, those are the NPCs. And the event that they did now has this ramification that affects the whole world. And your PC characters you now have to create have to deal with what happened 100 years later, which is just fun. 
Yeah, that's a really fun idea. I would love to do something like that. Uh, clearly, we would love to keep talking about role-playing games here. I mean, I think we've, <laughs> we have focused more on, on on the game elements here than we've really focused on the story, but it is actually time for us to turn to talking about Neil Gaiman on our Neil Gaiman podcast here. We'll do that. But I do want to say before we make that transition, just that we really would love to keep talking about role-playing games in some way. And, and something we brought up earlier in particular that I think we would really love to do would be to look at some of the specific setting guides for the world of darkness. And, you know, it wouldn't have to be the Chicago one, but that's the one that I think, you know, would really kind of be the the Venn diagram for for, for us here, having grown up in Chicagoland. Uh, but there's a lot of fun stuff to do with the world of darkness. And uh, if you're interested in that, uh, we'd, we'd love to hear from you about that. But yeah, let's move into talking about Neil Gaiman a little bit here, because the reason we're doing this on this show, on Hanging Out with the Dream King, is that uh, Gaiman has also brought fairies into his urban fantasy story. We haven't had, you know, we're not done getting that yet. We will get more of that. But we've had the big A Midsummer Night's Dream issue of The Sandman. And we then also have already looked at uh, Rudyard Kipling's use of Puck, also from A Midsummer Night's Dream. We've talked about things Gaiman has has uh, borrowed and adapted from that Kipling story as well. And I think that we should close out this episode by uh, thinking about the Changeling as yet another way to take medieval and early modern fairies and turn them into speculative fiction stories and compare them to what Gaiman and, and Kipling have done. And to my mind, one of the the real contrasts here is that the role playing game has really dialed up the the darkness here. Right? It's pretty clear in a Midsummer Night's Dream game in a Midsummer Night's Dream that the fairies are aloof. That these aren't people who care about us. Uh, they're not people we would like very much. Like they, you know, none of these people are coming to my party. Uh, none of these people want to you know do a podcast with me, right? That's not, that's not who these people are. But there, it's an aloofness more than a darkness, I feel like. But here, wow, in Changeling, this is, this is darkness. These are, these are creatures who are evil, I think, more than aloof. Yes, they are definitely presented more as kind of dark things that will do you ill. And, and we get some of that in the Midsummer Night's Dream. You know, we're concerned about what's going to happen to, to Hammett. Um, but it's kind of all off panel, um, metaphorically as well as literally. Um, and there's a lot of bright colors and stuff. And I think you could run your Changeling game that way. And that strikes it more like I think Changeling the Dreaming was going for, where it's just like you're a fey creature out of sorts and being fey does not necessarily mean you are evil. But while Changeling the Lost takes a different approach where – uh, the the true fairy in it are just their kind of desire and malevolence wrapped into these otherworldly beings. They're kind of like hyper emotional Lovecraftian monsters in some way, right? Um, where instead of being kind of cold, you know, rational, cold, well, irrational things, right? That are existing outside space and time. They're things that exist outside space and time, but are also interlaced with very strong emotions um, and also playing on a lot of the archetypes of storytelling as a whole. 
I mean, a huge part of the the world of darkness, right? The impetus of Vampire the Masquerade and and also Changeling the Dreaming is is simply, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you could be X, right? Hey, wouldn't it be cool if you could be a, a vampire? Wouldn't it be cool if you could be a, a, a fairy? And part of the the way that works is to at least give players an option to not be, you know, the evil scary, horrifying version of that, right? So it would be cool to be a vampire in the sense of, you know, being an immortal, being a part of this uh, this secret supernatural world. Uh, yeah, you, you have to live off of human blood, but the game gives you some ways to uh, do that without being a predator, without being someone who hunts humans in, in alleys and, and that sort of thing. And we get that in Changeling the Dreaming as well, where it's, wouldn't it be cool if there was magic in the world, right? That would be a fun world. That would be a world that's more fun than the mundane world of, you know, office parks and shopping malls that we we live in here in 1991 or 1995. But yeah, Changeling the Lost has said no, 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 it wouldn't be cool. That's not what this is a game about. This is not a game about wouldn't it be cool to be a fairy. This is a game about you're a runaway slave. And now here's your story. And you're not, it's not wouldn't it be cool to be a fairy, which changing the dreaming is, it's wouldn't it be terrifying if fairies were real and they were these, you know, horrifying malevolent creatures that are sending their, as they call them, huntsmen out to get you. Um, and you're touched by them and kind of um, slightly different. And one, one thing that kind of comes to mind when I think about Neil Gaiman, Sandman, and when I think about the um, Changeling the Lost is I keep thinking about um, Coraline, which is a story and um, film that we have not discussed on the podcast yet. Um, but just the envisioning of, you know, a person who is kind of turned into a doll where there's a needle and a thread and there's, you know, image with the eye there that's very disturbing. Um, but that's kind of what I imagine is just like you've stepped in this other world where you think you're going to get what you want and you quickly realize – Oh no, this dream is actually a terrible, horrible place. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I think that's where there's a big difference between somewhat what we've seen in particularly Neo Game and Sandman versus what we, when it comes to the fairies versus the world of darkness kind of fairies as well is in Neo Gaiman's world, we have, we have kind of normal humans, you know, some of them may be John Constantine. Um, and some of them might even have superpowers, right? Um, but then completely separate from that, we have the Endless. And completely separate from that, we have the Fae and the Fairy folk. While as in Changeling, we've got this distinct bucket of, bucket of there are these true fairies, these true Fae. We have normal people, but then we have this thing that is between them that is not just like a person with superpowers. It's someone who has been changed to their core. And the idea of like someone – of kind of a kind of a mixed thing that's got buckets of both poured into it and neither of them go well together. You've got oil and you've got water and it just isn't working out well for you. Um, or, you know, if you want to do a happy version, you've got diet Coke and you've got Mentos, right? <laughs> um, but like just, you've got two explosive things together and we don't, I don't feel like we ever get that. We don't tend to have, um, except for, you know, when we're bringing mytholo mythological figures, um, which we talk about in Sandman sometimes, um, where we've got like, oh, this person's a demigod, but we don't have a lot of like, 
And then changeling, it's not interbreeding, but effectively that's what we, what I'm thinking of. It's just like something that is crossed with something down to like a cellular level almost. I really appreciated that you, you brought up uh, Coraline, Brent, which is my favorite prose game and book, though. Again, uh, we're going to wait till Finch is old enough for that book before we do it on the show, though. Of course, that's actually going to be right about the time we're finishing up The Sandman and turning our attention to uh, to other novels anyway. So that'll that'll work perfectly. But I hadn't thought about that. But that, I think, actually sums up uh, the, the feel of that, right? That there is another world somewhere that is malevolent and that once you come in contact with it, that malevolence is is kind of after you, even if you are safely back in, or you know, uh, seemingly safely back in uh, what you regard as being the real world, uh, which is you know a, a fairly classic storytelling device. I think Coraline is one of my favorite examples of that, and so yeah, we can look ahead to to, to thinking about that as a comparison. But I also really like the way that you you, you fleshed out some of the things that I was uh, trying to get at there, Brent. And I guess I kind of feel like. What Gaiman has done in The Sandman, at least as we've had it so far, is to thread the needle between uh, something that on one end is really quite uh, urban fantasy and something on the other end that is really uh, a, a grim and, and and dark horror piece. And Gaiman certainly could tell that story about Hamnet in, in, in that mode, and maybe we will get that someday. But I, it does make me appreciate the, the way that Gaiman has kind of tried to navigate that in his depiction of the fairies in A Midsummer Night's Dream. I mean, I think part of it also is, you know, I, one of the storytelling conventions that I love, Glenn, um, which I think you know, is when I try to think about stories from alternate viewpoints. Um, like what it would like, what would it like to, what would it be like to be at Hogwarts and not be one of the main characters and just be <laughs> like, oh, why do those kids keep on getting in trouble? Um, and then why suddenly is my school a weird fascist thing? And also, why is there a house of evil? I don't, I mean, anyways. <laughs> um, but, I think the fact that the Sandman comics main protagonist, although we've talked about not always, uh, any given issue, but for the run of the comic, our protagonist is Morpheus. He is Sandman. And I think that you would never have that in Changeling the Lost, right? Your, your protagonist is never the otherworldly thing. Your protagonist is the thing that is scared of the otherworldly thing. So it's as if, Instead of us reading, if Neil Gaiman wanted to tell similar stories, then it would be not, this is Sandman's view of what's going on. Um, it would be a hundred percent like this is the way that just like, you know, Hobbes sees things versus, you know, how will Shakespeare sees things versus, and we skipped snippets of that. But like, if you had the whole story of Sandman told just from, you know, the mortal sleepers who have to show up to like, carry wine around the table, um, then it's a very different and at times like terrifying if you're the one who like keeps bumping into the sky who's got teeth for eyes. Like that's a very different world. Well this I mean this is Rose Walker's 
story, essentially, right? I mean, I mean, that's what that's what type of story that is. Is here is someone who at least thinks of herself as just a regular person in the regular world, and all of a sudden, yeah, there are these horrifying things crashing into her world. That's not quite the way that Gaiman tells that story, but you certainly could tell the story in that in that mood or in that mode if you if you wanted to, right? You know, give us a little bit more for make her something a little bit more like Lisa McDade is here in in this story. And yeah, you could you could see Morpheus's story or dream story through that lens. Yeah. And now that we're talking about Rose Walker, I want to run Changeling the Lost and have Gilbert be one of the, you know, Fae who, you know, has escaped from the fairy and is hiding, you know, from his fairy lord, um, but is also kind of helping the characters navigate their way through life, but happens to also literally be the personification of J.K. Chesterton, because that's what he was. That was his role, right? I, I mean, he already knows the uh, original versions of these stories, right? I mean, that's uh, he's yeah. telling the you know the the, the pre Grimm brothers uh, versions of these fairy tales, so he would fit right in there. And I I guess just to bring us out of this episode and, and start wrapping things up, certainly right, the World of Darkness, nineteen ninety one, Vampire the Masquerade, nineteen ninety one, Sandman starting in nineteen eighty nine. You know, they weren't informed by each other, I don't think, but they are certainly growing out of uh, a, a, a cultural zeitgeist, right? That that was the cultural zeitgeist that we grew up in. And you can see a lot of uh, you know shared DNA in terms of, of influences on them and also interests in thinking about uh, the real world if it also were actually suffused with supernatural elements in, in different ways. And so uh, they've got a lot in common. It would be a lot of fun to continue talking about the world of darkness in other ways. We could do more of that here on this show. We could do it on, on, on some of the other shows as well. But we are not done with bonus commissioned episodes that are uh, tugging on the thread of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which we will, I think, when all is said and done, have had three or four episodes of here in this uh, this interlude between volumes of The Sandman, because we have also received a, an episode commissioned to cover a Terry Pratchett novel, a Discworld novel. This is the novel Lords and Ladies, which is Terry Pratchett's adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And of course, Terry Pratchett is someone Neil Gaiman has co authored a book with. So this is something I'm very excited to to do, Brent. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to reading it. Um, I'm a fan of Terry Pratchett. I have not read that particular uh, book, so I'm really looking forward to reading and discussing that with you. Um, and again, it's really great when the patrons give us an excuse to do what we otherwise would not have, you know, the resources to set aside the time to do. Um, it, it's great that they provide that support, but also that they bring to us ideas that we maybe wouldn't have thought of ourselves. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm very, very excited for that, just as I was excited to do this. And this episode has been an absolute blast. So as we're signing off here, I want to say thank you again so much to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. But that is going to do it for now. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. So as I said, we are going to be doing Terry Pratchett's Discworld novel, Lords and Ladies, but that actually will not be for two episodes. So next time we're going to be back with the Neil Gaiman short story Chivalry. After that, we'll have Lords and Ladies. Very excited about both of those. But until then, until next time, pleasant dreams. <laughs>